0: scholars believe that these psalms of ascent, that they were sung by the people of God, the community of God, as they walked through the streets of Jerusalem to make their way to the temple. Now, if you know anything about the landscape of Jerusalem, you know that the temple is on top of Mount Zion. And to get there, you had to ascend many steps and steep paths. Now, there are 15 psalms labeled Songs of Ascent. And uh, they're assembl- they are assembled together right in the middle of the book of Psalms. They make up Psalms 120 through 134. They're short, usually five to nine verses, though Psalm 131 and 134 are even shorter than that at three verses. And so they are easy for even young children to learn and memorize, making it easy for a community of pilgrims while they're traveling to sing together. And as you read through these psalms of ascent, uh, they tend to be very visual in their orientation. And they relate directly to what the worshipers would be experiencing as they approach the Temple Mount. So, for example, in Psalm 121, verse 1, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Or Psalm 125.1, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains that surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. You can imagine the, the sense of excitement and the sense of community that people had as they sang these psalms together on their journey to worship. No doubt there would have been a deep sense of connectedness to God and to each other as they walked hand in hand with brothers and sisters carrying their children to worship the Lord at the temple. Now, most of the psalms of ascent, most of the 15, are, as you might expect, happy psalms, joyful psalms. But Psalm 126 is not one of them. It's a sad song in many ways. However, it's not a typically sad song. It contains no refrains of self-pity, no notes of despair. Rather, this sad song harmonizes the low notes of trouble, of loss, and calamity with the high notes of restoration, and thus it creates a cadence of hope. The song was written at a time of calamity, But it recalls a previous time when God was merciful to restore the fortunes of his people. And the song anticipates that if God was willing to restore us before, surely he will do so again. And so just in application, we have a song to sing with God's community. This this evening as we read Psalm 126. And my personal application to you is, is if I were to ask you, what what personal song are you singing right now? If, If you were to transpose your life into song, what kind of song would it be? If yours is a sad song, or at least a song with many sad verses, then Psalm 126 will teach you how to sing your sad song beautifully so that it leads to hope. And not despair. So let's read it together. Psalm 126. Starting at verse 1 When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for the sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So as we join with the community of God's people who have sung this psalm, our voice... Our very soul is trained to sing true. That's the main point of my message tonight, to sing true. What does it mean to sing true? It means to sing in tune with reality, not out of tune. But your telling of things is true to the situation and true to who God is. And because you're able to harmonize what God says and who he is with your circumstances, you always have hope, no matter the calamity. And that's what Psalm 126 teaches us. It teaches us how to sing any sad song with hope. To sing honestly, but without the toxic poison of despair or self-pity or with the futility of self-reliance. How so? First, notice the range of the song. It ranges the full gamut emotionally. From laughter and shouts of joy, verse 2, to tears and weeping in verse 5 and 6. And it ranges the full gamut situationally from seasons of calamity to seasons of blessing and then to seasons of calamity, once again, which is the present situation of the writer. It's back and forth. Life is like that. Back and forth, up and down. And we know that the present situation is difficult because verse 2 says, then our mouth was full of laughter. Not now. Then it was. And verse 9 says, They're asking God to to restore their fortunes, I'm sorry, verse 4, to restore the fortunes because they've lost their fortunes. And they describe their life like streams in the Negev. Well, the Negev is an arid, dry, desert region. Most of the time, it's like a desert. The streams are dry beds. And so they're asking for God to restore them because they have lost so much and they are sowing in tears, but they trust that God will answer their prayer. In describing life, the psalmist doesn't ignore or minimize the sad stuff. His description is honest, realistic, and sober in its assessment. It's not pessimistic, but it certainly doesn't ignore or minimize the sad things in life. It refuses to live in denial. The song reflects no confidence in the self-protective instincts of distraction and denial and minimizing the sadness, the sad things in our life. Now the psalmist admits that they need to be restored, that they have suffered much loss. The range of the psalm shows the writers determined to sing true. True about life situations, its highs and lows. But notice also the tense of the song shows that the writer's determined to show the Lord of the situation. Not just the reality of the situation, but the reality of who the Lord is over the situation. If you look at verses 1 and 2, they're written in the past tense, and verses 3 through 6 are written either in the present or future tense. And the, and the tense shifts... Because it's highlighting what the Lord has done, past, present, and future. Verse 1 When the Lord restored our fortunes, we were like those who dreamed. And then our mouth was filled with laughter. In other words, he's saying, Remember those days? Those glorious days when we had gone from rags to riches, when our circumstances had improved dramatically because God had blessed us. We were like those who dreamed. Now, that could mean either they were living a dream and it was almost too good to be true that they didn't want to wake up or that the blessings of life, these restored blessings, gave them confidence to dream again, to have hope for better things. Whether the psalmist meant we thought it was too good to be true, we were dreaming, or the truth of it all made us confident again to dream and have hope for the future, the point is that God's past restoration was not a meager restoration. It was a lavish restoration. His relief from past calamities more than made up for the loss. It reshaped their thinking. It healed their hearts and it gave them confidence to anticipate a bright future. Because they not only sang true about their situation, but they remembered the Lord of their situation and the truth of how he intervened and his character and who he was. And it was undeniable how God had delivered them. His restoration was not debated. No one was saying, oh, maybe God intervened. No, even Israel's Enemies, even surrounded nations, verse 2 said, The Lord has done great things for Israel. God's people joined in the celebration. Everyone was agreeing that God had blessed them, and so they repeat it in chorus. What does this mean? If we are to sing true, we must not simply describe life situations, we must remember the Lord in the midst of life situations. How do you do? at both of those. When you look at your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, do you tend to minimize the hard things in life, fearing that honestly taking stock of your life will leave you utterly depressed, maybe without hope? Or do you tend to distract your things from the hard stuff in life, distract yourself from thinking about loss, believing it makes no difference to think about it and it only exhausts you? Or are you at the other end where you tend to exaggerate and amplify your loss because pity parties have benefits? And maybe you're considering my question. You don't actually know how to answer how you evaluate your sense of loss. You're not sure if you minimize things or exaggerate things. Maybe you feel rather schizophrenic. One moment you feel cold and indifferent about the hard things in your life, and the next minute you feel like a hot mess. And if you want to stay grounded in reality and truth, you want to maintain poise, but you don't know how, Psalm 126 shows us that as we remember the Lord of our circumstances, His character, His truth, His ways, His power to restore what has been lost, our hearts are brought into harmony with reality for what reality is. We have no need to minimize our problems, nor to exaggerate, nor to distract them. Why? Because we know we serve a God of reality. And he knows the truth and he's not afraid of it, even though we may be afraid to face it. And he can bear any truth, no matter how ugly or difficult, and he proved that on the cross. Our God is not unable to sympathize with our pain. He sympathizes with sad truths, for he made himself weak in the person of Jesus Christ, and so he knows how to weep with us. And so we do not need to minimize things out of fear that no one will really care and our weeping will be unheard, because we have a God who hears. See, if you want to be able to sing true, to be able to face your situation and all of its truth without minimizing or exaggerating or distracting yourself, you have to remember the Lord of your situation. That's the beauty of Christianity. We don't have to fool ourselves into false optimism. We can have good cheer and we don't have to cover the ugly truth because our God can deal with any ugly truth. In Christ, like in the cross, hope comes no matter how ugly the truth is. And so sing true. Tune your heart to the reality of your circumstances and to the reality of the Lord of your circumstances. And only when you do both will you be able to sing true without debilitating self-pity or bitterness or resentment. Your sad song will never be disintegrated into a cacophony of the screams of despairing people. So that's the first point, to sing true. But the second point is to sing true. Notice verses 3 through 6. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. I like to sing. I have an okay voice, not great. It sounds better in the shower, trust me. (laughs) But you know where I sound best? In the car. Because in the car, I can turn up the volume and sing along with gifted artists on the radio. And joining the chorus of those singing on the radio enables those with okay voices like myself to sound great. And even people with really bad voices to sound pretty good. Well, in the same way, when we sing the Psalms, we are joining with the greatest artist, the Spirit of God, who composed the songs of God... And we're singing with the community of God, with those holy saints who have trained their voices to harmonize with God's truth and his grace. And so if you have a terrible voice, if your sad song, as you transpose your life into a sad song, and when you sing it, you sound like a drowning cat filled with panic and despair, and what I encourage you to do is turn up the volume of God's word and keep singing. And pretty soon, your sad song will start to sound beautiful and it will change your anger, angry and bitter tears into happy and hopeful tears. How does that happen? Well, look at the psalm. Three things that we see in verses 3 through 6. First, sing it till you believe it. Second, sing it even though you have nothing to offer. And third, sing through your tears until they become shouts of joy. First, sing it till you believe it. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. See, in verses 1 and 2, right before verse 3, the people of God had looked back and remembered the good things that God had done in the past. They remembered it and they let it sink in. And so by the time they get to verse 3, they're convinced of the Lord's goodness and they are glad. What's the main point here? Remember God's grace and sing of it until you believe it, until it sinks into the nooks and crannies of your heart and you begin to see it. Can you think about anything that the Lord has done in your life that is overwhelmingly good? If you're in the midst of a dark place, it's hard to remember those things, isn't it? But it's vitally important. And the fact of the matter is, no matter how difficult your situation, how dark and cold your season of life, God's mercies are new every morning. And if you cannot think of anything presently that God is doing in your life that is good, think of what he's done in the past. And if you still are having a hard time coming up with anything, go back further into the past and think of what he's done for you at the cross and cling to that truth until it makes you glad. Truth be told, we are finicky, forgetful creatures. And sometimes it takes a long time, particularly if we have been defiled and abused or we have made a mess out of our lives. It takes a long time for God's truth to sink in. And so we must soak ourselves in God's truth and his grace. And singing God's truth makes for an effective brine that penetrates unbelieving hearts and locks within them a fresh joy and gladness. So sing until you believe it. If you don't know where to start, start with Psalm 126. Move on to the other Psalms of Ascent and sing those Psalms until your darkness well, you ascend out of it. They're short and they're memorable and they're very helpful. Second, saying even when you have nothing to offer, look at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Like I said earlier, the Negev was an arid wilderness region in the land of Judah, mostly desert most of the year. It was a place of emptiness and death. That's where our Lord was taken when Satan tempted him in the wilderness for 40 days. But what is remarkable about the Negev is that when rain comes, rarely, but when it does, out of this dead, dry desert, life sprouts in a matter of days. The whole region goes from death to life. Asking God to restore your fortune like the streams in the Negev is like asking God to bless you when you have nothing to offer. You feel dead inside. You are exhausted. And you feel unworthy. And the point is, it doesn't matter how dry and dead you feel inside. No matter how hopeless you are, God can work like the streams in the Negev, he can bring about new life. And if you can admit, though dry and dead as you are, that God's power can bring you life, you will continue singing even when you have nothing to offer. You will still ask for God to bless you, to be gracious with you. He knows how utterly dependent on him that you are. Do you know how utterly dependent you are? If you do, you will sing when you have nothing to offer because you understand grace. See, religion says, Restore me, God, because I finally got my act together. I finally made myself strong enough and worthy enough for you to work in me. But a heart transformed by songs of grace says, I'm dead inside. I got nothing to offer. This is dry. But please, send send your grace into my life. Restore me like streams in the Negev. And you sing it when you have nothing to offer and you see God answer our prayer. And you say, how does God do that? Well, that leads to our last point. Sing through your tears until they become shouts of joy. Verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping... Bearing the seed for sowing shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The image here is of a farmer who takes the main staple of his security and his wealth, which is the produce of his land, the same seeds that he uses for food to sustain his family. He takes it, and he goes out to his field, and he buries it in the ground. He buries the poor seed to death. He lets it go. And there it lies in the dry dirt, his security, his wealth, buried like something dead in the ground. And like all funerals, it takes a lot of work to bury our precious. It comes with tear, tears, and pain and toil. And so why does the farmer do it? He believes that after the seed is buried and it dies, something new and better will sprout to life, and so he sows in tears. Because he has hope that someday he will reap with shouts of joy, having lost nothing but actually gained 30, 60, and 100-fold. And in the same way, our sad stories, our calamities, our loss, forces us to let go of precious things, things in which we find our present security. And letting go is not easy. It takes a lot of work to finally lay something to rest, and it comes with tears. But when we can trust, like the dead seed that's buried in the ground can create new and better life, that God can bring new life out of our dead things, out of our dying dreams, our dying relationships, our dying bodies, when we commit those things to Him, God brings them back to life. How do we know this? Not just by looking at the signs of creation like the psalmist did, but by looking at the signs of redemption at the cross. See, our ultimate hope is Jesus lived a sad song. His was a very sad life full of heartbreak and disappointment, and he did it to save us from having to live out the fullness of our sad song. Only he had to live out the fullness of his. There was no relief of his sadness, of his loss and pain. In fact, he bore the fullness of that sadness and calamity on the cross. And he sung the saddest of all songs on the cross. Psalm 22, you've heard it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's just verse 1. Verse 2, by day I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. By night I find no rest. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They wag their heads and say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. What a sad song. Verse 14, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lie me in the dust of death. That is a sad song. Why did Jesus sing such a sad, hopeless song? Why did he make that his own song? Well, so that you and I would never have to make that our song. He absorbed the sin of the world and all the sadness and the despair and the death that goes with it. He gobbled it all into himself so that he could do away with it. The only one who never deserved such a sad ending, lived it, so that we who actually deserve our sad songs will never have to live them or be stuck in them. Because three days later, like the seed that the farmer planted in the ground, Jesus rose to new life, resurrected life, and he offers all those who trust in him the same hope. And so we can sing through our tears. The psalmist looked at creation and saw a metaphor of resurrection hope. But we get to look at the cross and see a reality of resurrection hope. So no matter your calamity, your trials, the storms in life, no matter how sad your song, you can sing through the tears knowing that in God's hands, he can transpose your sad song into a song of celebration and new life. Father, we thank you that you give us the Psalms to teach us how to sing in the midst of our sadness and disappointment and broken dreams and broken bodies and broken relationships and living in a broken world. There's so much sadness sometimes it crushes us. But Lord, we thank you that this sad song, when we sing it, it can teach us to sing with hope. As we tune our hearts to the reality of our God. The fact that he is present. to The fact that he brings life out of dead things, that he brings life out of dry regions. Father, this gives us hope. Help us to connect the principles of this resurrected hope to the practical struggles in our daily lives so that we can sing, and we can sing with hope and not despair in the midst of our sadness, that we can sing through our tears and know that you will bring healing.